Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So we're back again. I've been on Good Morning Britain this week, getting up at 3.45, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And we were looking forward all week to Boris Johnson giving his evidence uh, Wednesday and Thursday at the COVID inquiry and uh, thinking that would be the big moment of the week, the big issue we would need to talk about at the centre of our podcast today. But no. The amazing thing about politics is its constant capacity to surprise. And so Boris will actually be pleased that he is not centre stage at the moment because of the big row about immigration. So first of all, anyway, we're going to talk a bit about Boris. We've got to talk about Boris and COVID, but then we'll move on to the big issue of the week now. Yeah, it's immigration, but it's really the reopening of the big civil war inside the Tory party, which had been put on hold for some months. And this extraordinary situation where the immigration minister resigns at the very moment the immigration bill from the government, the Rwanda bill, is being presented to Parliament. And then thirdly, something people may not have quite um, seen, Keir Starmer triggered this um, at the weekend with his article, the ghost of Margaret Thatcher, you know, somebody who's not been prime minister in our country for over 30 years, she's still pervades politics. She's still a big, big political figure. And we're going to talk about why that is the case and why Keir Starmer, alongside, um, of course, many conservative leaders and potential leaders like to talk about Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister. First of all, though, Boris at the COVID inquiry, I would say not hugely enlightening day yesterday of testimony. What did you think? Did it surprise you? Well, they've got this very smarty-pants barrister, haven't they? Hugo Keith, who's top of his game, would have been looking forward to having Boris Johnson in the dock. And I think what uh, Hugo Keith discovered is what a load of people who are very hardworking, spent all night reading up their briefs, have found when they confront Boris Johnson, which is they can't really land a glove on him. And I think maybe because expectations were so low, maybe because we knew that Boris Johnson's premiership was pretty chaotic, I don't think we learned anything from his first day at the COVID inquiry. Maybe we'll learn more today when he starts to talk about what happened later on as the vaccine started to be rolled out and there was that second lockdown. But I think there's, you know, there were some uncomfortable moments for Boris, but he would have come away thinking, job done, haven't really 
created some massive new story. There's not some moment where I look like a complete fool. And, you know, I just about got away with my argument, which was no one knew it was going to be this big. And I apologize that I was one of those people. Look, I am... I have a little bit of sympathy with him about the kind of inherent uncertainty February into March, which in retrospect, with hindsight, we knew what was going on, but they didn't at the time. I also have a bit of sympathy with him about the fact that the scientists weren't giving a clear view and a clear lead February into March. But actually, to say it worked for him, I mean, the reality is in this inquiry so far, over the past few weeks, you've had his own advisers saying it was a shambles and he was the wrong person to do the job. You've had the scientists saying that he didn't understand what was going on. You've had the civil servants saying it was chaotic and contradictory. You've had Matt Hancock saying some pretty tough things as well. He had the opportunity to kind of rebut all of that. And he didn't really. I mean, he... It wasn't worse for him at the end of the day, well, but you couldn't say he made anything better. Well, it was classic sort of, you know, humble Boris. Boris with sort of looking down at his shoes like a kind of naughty schoolboy uh, before the headmaster. And I use that kind of language because that's exactly the sort of language he would use. And I completely agree that the picture being painted at the COVID inquiry is one of complete chaos. And it it's another nail in the coffin of the reputation of that government. I'm just saying that Boris's own appearance didn't really greatly add to that. It certainly didn't detract from it. You're right that he didn't use the opportunity to push a kind of counter-narrative. I thought one interesting thing was Boris tried a new tactic, which i am often seen him use, which is uh, loyalty. Because uh, he actually stood by quite a lot of the people around him, including Matt Hancock, who others had dumped on. And he said, oh, you know, he was very capable, Matt, and... I saw no reason to get rid of him. So I think it's interesting. He's definitely not, you know, he could, if you think about it, he could have gone out there in a more swashbuckling style and said, look, I had to take on the lockdown fanatics who wanted to shut down Britain. He didn't do that. You know, he, he, he definitely was sort of mumbling his answers and trying to get through the day. But there's a tension there. He can't say fundamentally the inquiry will show I made the right decisions and at the same time say I was forced to do all these things I didn't want to do by all these ideologues who were desperate to have lockdowns or whatever. And he, as you say, he decided to go with the collective story rather than try to rebut it. But I think if you were a family member there, look, he did a bit of an apology at the start. And there was a bit of a pushback from some people in the room. Some people were thrown out. But, you know, it was an opportunity at an inquiry for him to talk about mistakes, about what he regretted, to talk about the lessons he's learned, to have language which um, helps to heal. And there was people who've come to the inquiry who, who lost a loved one, a loved one who died alone in a very difficult way. And he had the chance to sort of reach out to them and use the inquiry to, to understand their pain. And I don't think that he did anything on that at all. Yeah, but it comes down to the point of what is the purpose of this inquiry? And I've given evidence to the inquiry. And if it's just a sort of moment when the nation can reflect, apportion blame, put their political leaders and scientific leaders in the dock and throw custard pies at them, fine. And quite often inquiries are like that. But if it's... And that can be quite a good thing. I mean, if you think of the Bloody Sunday inquiry, it was a very important healing thing. David Cameron's statement to the Commons was hugely important in what it said about, you know, Britain 
and the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, I think there are times when these inquiries can help to bring some understanding, some closure, some togetherness. Yes, but I think that works when it's a very sort of specific event. So Bloody Sunday, you know, that's a terrible incident where the British paratroopers open fire in Derry or Londonderry and people are killed. And I don't think anyone claims that that was a good incident, you know, even at the time. Then you have other things. More recently, we've had, um, it's not really a public inquiry, but a bishop-led inquiry into the Hillsborough tragedy. We've had the contaminated blood inquiry report recently. These are, I would say, quite isolated, either terrible sort of disasters in a football stadium or in a, you know, in a housing estate or a very specific policy error. But hugely blood. important to the families to go through that experience. Very important to the families. But if you take COVID, you know, this consumed Britain and the world for several years. It affected all aspects of people's lives. Many people died, hundreds of thousands of people died, of whom the people who, you know, and I don't take anything away from their grief or their determination to get to the truth, but the people who've turned up at the inquiry are a very small group of a much larger group of victims of the coronavirus. And I would say the central purpose of this inquiry is so that whoever is the next prime minister when a virus hits that we don't know has some kind of guide, better guide than Boris Johnson, to be fair, had when he was confronted with this coronavirus in early 2020. And I'm not sure at the moment, it's still got years to run this inquiry, that we're getting any closer to answering these basic questions, which is, was it right to lock down schools or did that do too much damage to people's education? Was it right to keep prisoners in cells and sort of stop the virus? Or was that terrible for their rehabilitation and the criminal justice system? These basic policy questions, we're still no closer to having any kind of, you know, better answer. And it's left to a sort of political judgment, which is what Boris Johnson, I think, was trying to explain in his evidence yesterday. It's interesting because... uh if you, if you take, for example, foot and mouth, there was an inquiry in 2001. When we had a second outbreak of foot and mouth in 2007, that inquiry from what it was six years before was very important in shaping how the government then responded again to the same problem recurring. And it feels to me it's quite early in this inquiry's life. They're still establishing facts and what went on. If it's going to succeed, it has to get into that more forward-looking, reflective lessons learned. Let's hope that um, the inquiry can do that. I kind of agree with you that maybe at the moment it looks like they're just trying to allocate blame and it's quite, um, the interrogation is quite Yahoo rather than intellectual, but that might change over time. Look, inquiries, if they only allocate blame, they don't really serve a wider purpose. The only thing I'd say is if you take the Chilcot inquiry, whatever you think about the outcome of the Chilcot inquiry... That was the one into the Iraq war. Into the Iraq war, which by that point, you know, a view had set about the mistakes the government had made. And um, and you know, Tony Blair, by that point, was quite isolated. A lot of people who had supported him before had now reached a different conclusion. In his evidence, though, I remember in Chilcot, he was clear, thoughtful, reflective. He explained why he'd made the decisions he'd made. You could disagree with him or agree with him, but you didn't think he was a guy who didn't really know what was going on or what decisions he was making. And, I mean, you know, if you're... Ed, Boris you, Johnson. <laughs> if you're trying to say that... You know, are you trying to compare Tony Blair's style of government to Boris Johnson's well, uh, style? Only, only, I don't, I don't only, think he, only. He, even the most ardent conservative would 
probably concede that Tony Blair was more organised in the way he ran his administration. I think even I think Tony Blair, you know, had a very tough time in the Chilcot inquiry and afterwards, but his performance wasn't embarrassing. And actually, Boris Johnson, you know, got away yesterday. But the idea this guy was prime minister, I mean, goodness me, Boris Johnson, you've known him a lot more than I have over the years. I remember um, you telling me that after the 2015 election, you and David Cameron tried to persuade him to actually come back into the cabinet. Well, yes, I mean, throughout my political career, there was always this question of what to do with Boris. And I came into Parliament with Boris and David Cameron and with the three of us to some degree, kind of hung out together as part of the new Conservative intake. And when we became the Conservative majority government in 2015 after that election, and Boris was about to stop being mayor of London, there was a question of could we bind him in, because we knew it would be a bit of a nightmare. He got re-elected to Parliament at that point. And we had an idea of making him the DCMS secretary, which we thought the culture secretary, because we thought that was the most consistent with also being the mayor of London, because he didn't want to give up being mayor of London for the final year of that tenure. So that was the idea. Um, the main problem was he couldn't afford it. <laughs> he, he didn't have to, he, he physically, he, he financially just simply oh, couldn't afford it. So, so I mean, afford it, it wasn't he had to pay to do it. He was going to be paid, but he'd have had to give things up. Is that right? So I had many conversations with him about it. And I'm sure there were other reasons why you know he thought he couldn't be mayor and a member of the cabinet. But uh, Including that he couldn't stand you and David Cameron? Well, I think it's, it's not, I, I would say one of the, tragedies for Boris Johnson's political career is he drifted further and further away from his natural supporters and friends. But in this particular case, you know, he's just said to me, look, I've got my mayor salary, which was more than a cabinet minister. I've got my column in the Daily Telegraph. Hundreds of thousands of pounds. Hundreds of thousands of pounds, which I've been writing as mayor, which was quite controversial back when he started doing that. But uh, and, you know, you, you tell me I can't earn money as a journalist while I'm a cabinet minister. The rules won't allow it. And I've got this big book I've got to write on Shakespeare. And, and also, I mean, look, um, which got how a big many kids for. was he paying maintenance for? I mean, did he even know? Put it this way, the financial affairs were pretty complicated. Right. And it wasn't helped by the fact that the cabinet secretary at the time, the late and great Jeremy Hayward, ruled that he couldn't complete his book on Shakespeare if he was in the cabinet. So for all these reasons, basically, he couldn't afford to join the government. And I think if you look to COVID, there's a sort of untold story in February 2020 so you have to go back. This is just before a month of all the lockdown. This is when he was on holiday at Chevening, the foreign secretary's residence. Actually, it wasn't a holiday. He was writing a book to pay his tax bill. And the inquiry have asked him, why, you know, why were you absent for this key period? Why didn't you chair the kind of key COBRA, you know, the big government meeting on, on coronavirus? And I think he hits a kind of financial crunch in early 2020. when he's, Wild Prime Minister. Yes, because he's basically taken the job of Prime Minister, which is a big pay cut for him. He has a big tax bill to pay because he was giving speeches for money in that period between when he was Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister. And he wouldn't have put aside money to pay the inland revenue a few years later. For he H also probably with wallpaper as well. He had the decorating bill from the House and he, and he had his divorce bills, right? So all those things come together. So he's uh, writing a book to make money to pay his tax bill when he ought to have been chairing the COBRA meetings at the beginning of what turned out to be the worst pandemic in the last 100 years. Yes, because he's bust, he can't deal with COVID. That, that is the theory about what happened in February. And, you know, it didn't really surface, put it this way, at the uh, COVID inquiry. But it's, um, it's a personal pet theory of mine of why uh, he disappears in February. Look, other issues with Boris, which you see in this COVID inquiry, I mean... 
his judgment about the people he appointed around him. I remember the moment when he brought back Dominic Cummings after the election and just this sick feeling in my stomach, just thinking this is going to be a total catastrophe. That is the worst piece of judgment I've seen. But then, of course, you know, he um, he made a whole series of wild appointments. I mean, and they're all causing him trouble in the inquiry. Do you think he was, I mean, did he actually ever believe in anything? I mean, was he a man of principle? Well, I'd, I'm not sure I'd call him that. I think there are kind of core beliefs. You know, at his core, he's quite moderate, centre-right conservative who's patriotic and believes in free enterprise and free personal liberty. He's quite sceptical of foreign entanglements. I know, he, I remember when he was a backbench MP with, when we were both backbench MPs, he was very sceptical of some of the Blair interventions. So he's, there's a sort of natural Tory to him. But I think, you know, like a kind of Greek tragedy, the sort of pursuit of the gold, or like Lord of the Rings, the kind of pursuit of the crown, the, the ring, mm. ultimately corrupted him. And, so that weekend and, when he and, was... And, he, and drew him well away from what he really believed in. So that weekend when he was working out, he wrote the two different versions of his article, you know, should I be for staying in the European Union or for leaving the European Union? Did you genuinely not know that weekend which one he was going to write? Well, I, I look back on that period and I think perhaps the biggest mistake we made was not really nailing down where Boris Johnson was and not spotting that, of course, this was going to be a vehicle, the referendum, for him to uh, have a go at the leadership. And because David Cameron and myself were going to be for Remain, he ultimately had to be for leave, even though I deep down believe he is a Remainer. He was someone who did not want to leave the European Union and never thought we were going to leave the European Union, thought the result of the referendum was going to be we'd stay. But he would have been on the side that you know, his supporters in the party that he was certainly going to appeal to or where his potential votes were coming from as a future leader would want him to be on, which was the Leave side. So he's not like Michael Gove, who was the other big cabinet minister at the time, who did believe we should leave the EU. Don't know whether he regrets that now, but he had thought about it. I think Boris, but I've never seen the two articles, but people who have say the Remain article is much more convincing than the Leave article. The interesting thing about Boris in the end, though, was he wasn't brought down by money and he wasn't brought down by kind of lacking principle and he wasn't in the end brought down by the people he appointed uh, he was brought down by um just not being able to be to be straight in the end um being told by the privileges committee had lied to the house of commons and then you hear this yesterday in the covid inquiry when he's talking about whatsapp messages do you know why your phone was missing those five thousand odd whatsapps I don't know the exact reason, but it looks as though it's something to do with the app going down and then uh, coming up again. Um, but somehow uh, not automatically erasing all the things uh, between that date when, when it went down and the moment when it was last backed up. So I I can't give you the technical explanation, but that's the best I'm able to give. Apparently, he spent a year preparing to give this <laughs> evidence to this inquiry. And, you know, you know, at least um, Rebecca Vardy's kind of advisor said it was thrown off a boat into the sea. I mean, you know, at least that was slightly more plausible than this. I mean, good grief. Well, we're going to hear Rishi Sunak's explanation of why he can't produce his WhatsApp messages next mm, week. We are. That will seem quite a long time away for Rishi Sunak, because in the meantime, he's got to deal with another crisis in the Conservative Party, and we're going to talk about that next. 
So this was always going to be a difficult week for the government anyway on immigration. If you remember, their big Rwanda policy was struck down by the Supreme Court and they have responded this week with a new treaty with Rwanda and a new law. This is all about saying that if you turn up in this country as an illegal immigrant, you're going to be immediately taken off to Rwanda, which is a deterrent from you coming here in the first place. So all of that was on the cards anyway this week. And uh, they'd already got rid of Suella Braverman. But what they were not expecting was that the person actually in charge of the policy and person everyone thought was a reliable ally of the prime minister, Rob Jenrick, would resign at the very moment the new law was being introduced into the House of Commons. And on the same afternoon that the Home Secretary, who didn't resign but was sacked, said the Conservative Party is heading for disaster if they go for the very legislation that the Prime Minister then unveiled, or the Home Secretary did a few hours later. This is what she said. The Conservative Party faces electoral oblivion in a matter of months if we introduce yet another bill destined to fail. Do we fight for sovereignty or do we let our party die? So the Telegraph on Monday was saying there would be up to 10 cabinet resignations if Rishi Sunak does um, disapply the European Convention on Human Rights. He goes for a compromise in the middle and then loses his immigration minister, while the former Home Secretary says this is going to be a disaster. He's stuck in the middle. This looks pretty uncomfortable. Can they win the vote next week? Is this putting Rishi Sunak's leadership in doubt again? Well, the Tory civil wars have completely reopened. You know, Rishi Sunak's big claim was, I've come after the chaos of Boris Johnson and the chaos of Liz Truss. We were talking a bit about that during the COVID inquiry section. And, you know, I've stabilised things. He can't now claim anymore to have stabilised things. You know, his government is fragmenting around this immigration issue. And Rob Jenrick is a very particular loss for him because Jenrick was, alongside Oliver Dowden and Rishi Sunak, one of the three musketeers. Now, not your original Portos, Aramis and Athos. The uh, three, I, I looked that up. By the I way. have to say that was very impressive. <laughs> I couldn't have done that. I think it was a question in Slubdog Millionaire, wasn't it? Who are the uh, who are the musketeers? Anyway, they, but these three, Olive, Rob and Rishi, not quite as glamorous, uh, wrote an article in 2019 as sort of essentially they were junior ministers in the Theresa May government and they came out and backed Boris Johnson for the premiership. And that really showed that Boris Johnson had won over the sort of centrist establishment of the Conservative Party. One of them is now the prime minister, one of the musketeers. The other is the deputy prime minister, Oliver Dowden. And the third, Robert Jenrick, has resigned on them both. And I think it's interesting, you know, you could take it at face value, which is he's just resigned because he genuinely has a massive disagreement on principle about the policy. But you've got to be thinking he's also positioning himself for what's going to come in the Tory party. You know, this is not a person who would just sort of flounce out of the room. I think Jenrick's making a calculation that my career in the Conservative Party, remember, he hasn't become Prime Minister or Deputy Prime Minister, unlike the other two, you know, my future career has got to depend on me detaching from those two now. He's also, though, been passed over. I mean, a year ago, when Suella Braverman was in real trouble, just after her appointment as Home Secretary, he was clearly positioning himself as Immigration Minister, the number two, saying to Sunak, look, give me the job, give me the job. A year later, when Braverman finally gets sacked, what does Rishi Sunak do? He doesn't appoint Jenrick. He brings in James Cleverly and leaves Jenrick in the same job. I mean, this is kind of like a slap in the face. And I just wonder how much of this is 
personal peak. I interviewed him earlier in the week and he was clearly bristling at what was going on. He didn't like um, what was happening around him. I mean, it, caused, look, it means that Sunak has got a big rebellion in the Conservative Party on one of the big central issues, immigration. It also means, frankly, that the ability of the government to sort of effectively get things done is starting to really fray. They may have a kind of quite large majority on paper, but back again are the big splits. Back again is the European Research Group, the ERG, which caused such a nightmare for Theresa May and uh, ultimately caused problems for Boris Johnson. You know, they're back sitting in session. He doesn't know whether he's going to pass this immigration bill next week. He came out today and uh, did a kind of press conference to explain what was going on. He was sort of pleading with the Labour Party to uh, support him on Tuesday because he'll potentially need their votes to get this law through. So it all looks a very weak position for a prime minister who, you remember, is trying to get to the end of the year saying, I've ticked off on my economy pledges, I'm beginning to turn things around in the health service, and crucially, I've uh, stopped the boats. But certainly it's not the case on the NHS. And when it comes to immigration, the government doesn't have a policy at the moment. So here's the BBC's political editor, Chris Mason, asking a question to the Prime Minister at uh, the Downing Street press conference today. Are you saying to your MPs bluntly on all of this, back me or sack me? Well, what I'm saying, not just to my MPs, but to the entire country, is that I share their frustration. Right? My patience with this has worn thin. The problem is, people don't want the Prime Minister to be frustrated. They want him to solve the problem. And, you know, unless he can show that he's got a cabinet and a party united behind his solution, don't you think people are just going to get even more frustrated with him? Well, I don't think the Prime Minister should say their patience is running thin, because then people's patience with their Prime Minister might start to run thin. And of course, what Chris Mason is doing there, you know, that question, back me or sack me, is, is, a, is a reference to John Major back in 1995, saying that to his own party when he faced actually sort of similar kind of problems with groups in the party, making it hard to govern. And, of course, he did get backed uh, rather than sacked, but the whole party was then kicked out two years later at the 1997 election defeat. So, you know, it, it, it's feeling increasingly like a premiership that is struggling to govern on this absolutely central issue, immigration. I mean, this is the thing I find kind of baffling about Rishi Sunak here because, um, you know, he said, I'd stop the boats. He said that um, this is his big mission and he's choosing to keep ramping up the, the rhetoric around this, the salience of it. I was saying last week or the week before that, that you can't not talk about immigration. Uh, it's important to talk about it. But if you talk about it and act, you then have, it then has to work. And it's hard to see that he's going to stop the boats over the next year. Um, it's not clear there would even be a single person sent to Rwanda before the election, even if um, he gets this legislation through. And it's now going to be mired in the, the Lords for months because the constitutional pushback on this is going to be so severe. They're essentially saying in the legislation, they say every decision maker must conclusively treat the Republic of Rwanda as a safe country. They just say the courts just have to take that as a given because we say it in legislation, independent of the evidence. I mean, constitutionally, to try and then cut the courts out from being able to scrutinise that, I mean, it's quite a big deal. Even if it gets through, though, I mean, how many people are going to be sent to Rwanda? Even if the policy works fully, I mean, 100 
That's what the Supreme Court judgment says. I mean, it's a tiny proportion of the people who are coming. I mean, compare 100 over a whole year compared to just last weekend. There were hundreds and hundreds who came over in um, in boats. And that's just in one weekend compared to a year. One weekend earlier in the year when there was over a 1,000. So um, I'm not sure whether it's going to look like it's the solution to the problem. I think James Cleverly, the new Home Secretary, was onto something a week ago. He said it's not the be-all and end-all. Right. He was trying to move the government off being overly dependent on this one policy. And they're right back on it today. And, and they're doubling down. The Prime Minister's given another press conference today, as we just said, you know, recommitting to this one policy as the solution to lots of the immigration uh, problems that the government has. Now, you know, I, I think that's a mistake because you're continuing to dig a hole. And ultimately, you know, that it's going to be a bunch of judges who decide your political success or failure. And you should never, as a government, particularly with a year to go to an election, be outsourcing, you know, your own success uh, or, or the judgment of your success. And they aren't going to cut the court. I mean, this legislation won't, in the end, prevent the courts from making decisions about individual cases. Which is what is causing the split in the Conservative Party. So the politics are, are pretty messy. And they'll be thinking, you know, in Downing Street, well, even the fight to get this legislation is going to be good and we can put the Labour Party on the spot. Um, but the truth is that's not how it looks right now. It looks like the government's falling apart on immigration. So they're not making any kind of great political point. And then you have this second kind of the real issue, which is what, you know, is Rwanda going to be that deterrent on immigration? And here I think the government, you know, at least have a case to make, which is lots of European countries are looking to process their asylum cases offshore. Denmark is actually has looked at Rwanda. Germany is talking about processing asylum cases offshore. Italy is, wants to open up processing centres in Albania. It's all to get around this point, which is otherwise, if you make it to any of these countries, you're basically there for life because it's pretty hard to get you deported. Uh, so they're all looking at similar solutions. And I have some sympathy for the government that that's the route they've gone down. But they've made such a meal out of this. And they've chosen Rwanda, which is you know not, frankly, the most obvious place you would establish your offshore uh, processing center. And so they've opened themselves up to this, you know, constant legal challenge, and essentially looking ineffective on a central issue as you approach an election. The truth is, it's really hard to manage this in government. And it's, it's easier in opposition, because you can criticise something which is failing. What's the truth about Suella Braverman? She's decided to go into opposition. Because in government, she was flailing around for a year trying to solve this problem. Much easier for her to stand on the side and fight her leadership ambitions through being essentially an opposition politician. And for Rishi Sunak, he's now got opposition in front of him and behind him in the House of Commons. So Rishi Sunak's in the weakest position he's been since he became prime minister. He's had people resigning from his government. He's got next week this potential uh, vote on this central piece of legislation which may fail. He's got his own appearance before the COVID inquiry, which is going to be messy. So it's it's all much, much more fraught than it has been in recent months. And, and of course, that goes counter to the central Rishi Sunak offer, which is I've brought stability and calm. Uh, I would only say in his defence, this is an incredibly difficult issue, as you say. It's much easier in opposition. Lots of European countries are wrestling with it. If Labour become the government in a year's time, they too will have this big problem. And you can say, oh, we'll speed up the asylum processing and we'll make it all more efficient. You've still got this basic problem, which is large 
numbers of people want to come to this country and some of them want to do so in small boats. And you can have any amount of international agreement to try and deal with it, but it's a growing pressure on all of these Western democracies and, and there's growing public concern about it. That's true, but that is why James Cleverly was right when he said not the be-all and end-all. Because actually, the government's deal with Albania has made a big difference. Clearly, what they've done with the French has improved the management of the the channel. There's more that needs to be done to kind of try to intervene earlier in terms of breaking up the criminal gangs. And then there is a broader question about how do you work with other countries to try and find a way to, um, to manage this. But the problem with the Rwanda policy is, even if he gets it through... He's going to spend a huge amount of money, now upwards of £140 million. He's going to upset so many people in doing it. And then what is the outcome? The outcome is there may be a few people who get sent to Rwanda on a plane, probably not till after the election, unless the election happens late next year. And in the meantime, he's still got huge numbers more still coming over the channel in boats and... Uh, Giving the impression that Rwanda is going to solve his problem it just seems to be politically really foolish. Well, I think it's a mistake to double down on something which ultimately you don't control the outcome of because you don't control the courts. I think the other thing that worries me, I could say, as someone who believes strongly that Britain should be in the European Convention on Human Rights, and we were one of the founding signatories of that, you know, we're not like countries like Russia and Belarus, which have left the European Convention on Human Rights, is that this idea has now sort of entered the conservative bloodstream, the a solution to the immigration problem is to leave the ECHR. And it's, of course, reminiscent of Brexit, which is we can solve our border problem by leaving the EU. Well, in fact, it just, my mind, has made the problem worse. And, you know, Rishi Sunak's kept it at bay. It's one of the reasons he's got these resignations like Jenrick and he's got Suella Braverman having a go at him, that he's refused to give in to the Tory right by saying we'll leave the ECHR or supply parts of the ECHR. But it does beg the question... Could you imagine becoming leader of the Conservative Party in the next few years and not without the promise to leave the ECHR? So this would probably be a contest in opposition rather than government. Uh, but now it looks like to win that contest, you're going to have to make some sort of promise like that. And maybe it doesn't matter because there'll just be an opposition leader and you know probably not the opposition leader who takes the Tories back into government. But it has entered the bloodstream. And as we saw with the Eurosceptics in the 1990s, it came back decades later as Brexit. And so it does worry me uh, that uh, now it's sort of becoming more and more socialised within the Conservative family that a solution to these problems is to leave yet another important international organisation. Very different from the kind of promises made by past Conservative um, leaders when they campaign to become leader of the Conservative Party. David Cameron may have said he would leave the the centre-right grouping. He certainly didn't say he was going to leave the European Union. John Major, no. Margaret Thatcher, also definitely not. It, uh, it's one aspect of um, Conservative history where the modern leaders seem to be rather breaking from their past predecessors. And we're going to be talking about Margaret Thatcher's influence on politics and the Labour leadership next. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So we thought we'd talk also today about the role of Margaret Thatcher in politics. There's been a row this week as Keir Starmer made a reference to Margaret Thatcher alongside Tony Blair and Clement Attlee in an article he wrote and then in a speech he did on Monday. Bit of a backlash. Why is he talking about Margaret Thatcher? But actually, it's interesting how the ghost of that former prime minister still lives on in our politics. I would say more than anybody else other than Winston Churchill in the um, post-war period. And uh, first of all, let's just hear what Keir Starmer said when he was explaining why he had evoked Margaret Thatcher last weekend. Yeah, what I was doing at the weekend in the article I wrote for the Sunday Telegraph was distinguishing between particularly post-war leaders, those leaders, those prime ministers, who had a driving sense of purpose, a mission, a plan to deliver, and those that drifted. It doesn't mean I agree with what she did, but you don't have to agree with someone to recognise they had a mission and a plan, in her particular case, about entrepreneurship. He's taken a bit of a hit in some circles on the Labour side, Keir Starmer, but was it the right thing to do? Yeah, I think it was a very sensible thing to do. I mean, first of all, the clue is the article was in the Sunday Telegraph. I mean, that is read by Conservative voters. And at last, you have a Labour leader, unlike the last couple, who's trying to reach out to people who've previously voted Conservative. Uh, second, I think he's trying to establish that he's not going to be a, a just a sort of steady-as-you-go social democrat, which is the critique of him that he's going to be quite a boring prime minister. He's actually saying, I'm going to be a consequential prime minister. I link myself to Margaret Thatcher and to Clement Attlee. Now, by the way, lots of prime ministers have done that before and also have been here today and come gone tomorrow prime ministers. I think also it's been a device of the recent successful Labour leaders, i.e. those who became prime minister, to make that rather kind of unusual link to Thatcher. Unusual because they all, including Keir Starmer, were bitterly opposed to Thatcher when she was actually prime minister. Keir Starmer, when he fought to become Labour leader, actually released a little video about how he had stood up to Thatcher as a lawyer in various disputes. But it's in both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, very soon after becoming prime minister, invited Margaret Thatcher around and rather ostentatiously did, did so. And I thought it was, you know, it was interesting. I mean, you, you must have been there. For Gordon Brown in particular, you can see why Blair might have done it, but Brown, you know, I remember he got Margaret Thatcher to actually turn up in Downing Street, get out of her car, come into the building. I mean, what was he thinking by doing that? Well, I think um, by that point, you know, on the one hand, she was clearly ageing at that point and... Um, Gordon was the kind of person who I, I remember being with him with um, Marcia Faulkner 
and Mary Wilson. He liked bringing past So that, that was Harold Wilson's wife, wife and Harold Wilson's famous political advisor. That's right. And they were both there together. Gordon liked, as a historian, bringing people back to, to Downing Street. He did it a lot of times. I think, of course, you're right, that both he and Tony Blair were sort of reaching into the middle ground and saying to people, if you voted Conservative in the past, if you voted for Margaret Thatcher in the past, it's okay to vote Labour now and that um, you know, we don't hate you because you might have once voted for Margaret Thatcher. In fact, there are things we can find common ground over. So there is a sort of piece of politics there. Interestingly, Danny Finkenstein in The Times um, this week, the columnist, said, actually, yeah, but nobody notices these things. Swing voters don't see that. And I read his column and I, I disagreed with him. I actually think Keir Starmer is doing something a bit different here, something which is a bit more acute for him than it was for Tony Blair or for Gordon Brown. Because for, for Blair and Brown, memories of you know the labour of Michael Foote were a long, long way back in the past. For Keir Starmer, it's much more immediate. And there's something about about leadership. I mean, whatever you think of Margaret Thatcher, whether you agree with her or not, and I profoundly disagreed with many things, she was so dominant when I was um, a teenager growing up. But, you know, strength, authenticity, conviction, she had those things. But it's also about leadership. One of the things I've often thought about leaders is that if you think of being in a restaurant, and um, suddenly somebody jumps on a table and shouts fire and points. You know, do you stand up and run the way they've pointed? And with Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Margaret Thatcher, absolutely. If they jumped on the table and pointed, then you would run because they had that presence, that, that, that leadership capacity. And I think it was always a question for Ed Miliband whether he had that sort of perception amongst the public that they would go the way he pointed. With Jeremy Corbyn... You, even you didn't follow the way he well, pointed it. I absolutely did. Um, but with Jeremy Corbyn, you would doubt whether he'd even get on the table. And if he made it on the table, he'd then do um, a speech in which he condemned extreme temperatures on both sides. And you'd be thinking, oh, yeah, but hang on a second, which way are we going here? But he probably had started the fire in the first place. Keir Starmer was in the shadow cabinet with Jeremy Corbyn quite recently. And he needs to show he's not like Jeremy Corbyn. He's a different kind of leader. And in evoking Attlee, Thatcher, Blair, he's saying, I'm the kind of guy who has got strength and conviction and authenticity. I can get on the table and point and you can follow me. And I think emotionally, what he's trying to do is distance himself from the Corbyn period and say, that is the kind of leader I am. And I think if he can pull that off, I think he needs to pull that off, that emotional connection to voters for them to think that he's not a Corbyn guy. Because it's quite recent, I don't think Tony Blair or Gordon Brown felt the same pressure and they wouldn't have evoked Thatcher leadership in the same way. Yeah, although they, they had a very important job to do, which was to say that Labour had changed and had understood the Thatcher settlement was there to stay. I, I mean, I, I think what Keir Starmer is demonstrating again and again is an appetite to win. You know, this guy wants to win the election. It's a big contrast to what you see from the Conservative Party this week. And, you know, he is prepared to invoke Margaret Thatcher to Sunday Telegraph readers if that's what it's going to take. That kind of hunger for power is not to be underestimated. And if you think like, well, all leaders must have that, a surprising number of leaders don't do what's required to win. And Starmer, whether it's the position he took on Israel and Gaza, whether it's holding tight on the spending plans, this is a guy who says, I am going to do whatever it takes to get myself into Downing Street in the next year. And when he gets whatever there... Whatever it takes, although, let's be honest, George, if he had been invited to the funeral, as, as I was, you were there, Kistama would not have shed a tear on camera at the funeral, <laughs> would he? 
<laughs> did Margaret Thatcher's funeral? Have done well, uh, I did. Whereas you did, I did blub a bit. Yes, I mean you blubbed. <laughs> that sounds like Boris Johnson language. <laughs> I blubbed. I think it was maybe it was. Uh, it was because it was during the sermon. I was sitting in the second row uh, behind the uh, former prime ministers, Blair, Brown, Major. And I was staring at the back of the head of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and John Major and David Cameron. And I was thinking, they're all sitting here watching this funeral thinking, when I die, I'm not going to get anything like this. <laughs> this, is, this is a big state funeral and we're not going to get anything like this. And it was quite emotional, but not least because the coffin was there. It was a funeral, wasn't it? But what was service. the thing in your mind which drew the tear? I, you know, I, I well up a bit at sort of big occasions, big kind of. It's true of uh, it'd be uh, sad things as well as sort of happy things. You know, the coronation or the state funeral or some big, big kind of. You know, when the Enigma variations from Elgar starts playing and the Archbishop of Canterbury is saying something and the church is draped in the flags, I'm afraid that um, sets me off. I know. <laughs> I welled up at the the um, Queen's funeral, definitely. I mean, those the huge occasion. I actually watched you on television. I was supposed to be in the service, and then I had this like really terrible flu, and therefore I had to sit and watch it on television from home. And the reason I remember this week really well was because I was actually running my second London marathon on the Sunday, and I kind of got off my sick bed on Saturday afternoon against advice and decided I'm going to do this quick training run, did the marathon on the Sunday, and. Um, I think I was then ill for about four months afterwards. It was a terrible, terrible decision. And in my mind, that painful day is all associated with the funeral of Margaret Thatcher and your tear. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad I have such a special place in your heart. Of course, if and when uh, Keir Starmer makes it to uh, 10 Downing Street, he'll be able to look at the Margaret Thatcher portrait that Gordon Brown commissioned rather unusually. Yeah. Uh, if you go into Downing Street, there aren't portraits of all the former prime ministers. There's the famous staircase with all the photographs. But you don't have lots of bit. It's not like the White House where they do have big portraits of Kennedy and Johnson. But there is a portrait of Margaret Thatcher. And the bizarre thing is it was Gordon Brown who commissioned it. Well, look, I have a very hazy memory of this um, period. Whether Gordon Brown knew much about it, I have no idea. You're, you're sounding like Boris Johnson before the know, COVID inquiry. I now. know, yeah, but I've not had a year to prepare for this. I didn't know you were going to raise this whole thing. But, I mean, my memory is I think I think the story appeared in, in one of the Sunday papers. So... I think, though, it was paid for. My memory is it was paid for by a Tory donor, a guy called Stuart Wheeler, commissioned the painting in order for it to be placed in Downing Street. Well, it was her, her portrait and her eyes looking down on me and David Cameron when we saw the result of the Brexit referendum because we watched it in that room on the first floor of Downing Street. And I did vaguely remember thinking at the time, a pretty bad night, she would have been saying, what have you done? How have you bet the farm and lost? And, of course, you know, she was a great, whatever people think now, great creator of the European Union and the single market. Now, listen, on to your questions. And thank you again for sending in so many interesting observations and things for us to think about. And please continue to send them in to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. Our first one this week is from Christopher. Could you explain the difference between monetary policy and fiscal policy, and who determines which between the government and the Bank of England? Thank you. From Christopher Roberts in West Yorkshire. Well, I would start here 
with actually a, a, the great Thatcher Chancellor, Nigel Lawson, who gave a famous lecture called the Mace Lecture in the 80s, which he drew a distinction. He said monetary policy, which is about controlling demand in the economy, is really something that is done through interest rates. And now these days, thanks to you, Ed, that's the Independent Bank of England who does that. Uh, and fiscal policy is about taxes. And that shouldn't be about managing demand in the economy. And it shouldn't be about controlling inflation and the like. That should be about having the right level of public services or the right level of taxes. But it's all become a bit muddled recently because the government is fighting inflation by trying to constrain spending. So that kind of clear distinction, which I think existed as part of the Treasury orthodoxy 10, 15 years ago, is a bit more murky now. Look, we went through a period where interest rates were so low that if the economy was weakening and you wanted to boost demand, it was hard to cut interest rates further. So therefore, you had to do it by spending or taxes instead. That was why, for example, in the financial crisis, there was a temporary VAT cut. That was like trying to do through a tax cut the same thing as an interest rate cut would do. But I think the best way for me to explain this to Christopher is just to think of it from the, the individual's point of view. If as an individual, you want to spend some money which you're going to earn later in life. You know, you want to bring your spending forward. If you want, for example, to get a loan, so you could buy a house now and then pay it back with your earnings over the next 20 years, you do that by getting a loan. And the interest rate set by the Bank of England decides how expensive that is. And if it's a really high interest rate, it's very hard for you to borrow for the future. And if it's very low, it's much cheaper to bring spending forward. That's monetary policy, setting how much it costs to bring spending forward to today from the future. Fiscal policy is exactly the same for the individual, except for the government does it. So what the government does is it says that I'm going to spend some of your money now through spending on public services through the government. And then I'm going to ask you to pay some more taxes in the future to pay it back a little bit like paying back your mortgage payment. And in that case, it's not the individual with monetary policy bringing forward spending. It's the government doing it on behalf of taxpayers. And sometimes government think that that means they can do it in a more targeted way, a more focused way, or in a faster way. But in the end, from the individual's point of view, either you're going to pay interest rates later to bring forward the spending, or you're going to pay some more taxes later to pay for bringing forward the spending. Either way, it's the same thing going on. Right. Well, I hope that comprehensively answers your question, Christopher. <laughs> what do you think? I, mean, it was, I think it was quite a good answer. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, Always good to get a bit of economics into um, our podcast. There we are. Now we've got another question. I love this guy's first name, Gideon Brook. Oh my God, have you been sending questions in? I said he shouldn't be, you know. I said any question from Gideon, any question from George, any question from Bungle, all of them are out. Anyway, no, no, this, really, one is, this is one for one of your personas, Gideon. With the recent price rise, what is your view on Bitcoin and how it could change the political landscape going forward? When I was Chancellor, I actually took a Bitcoin out of a uh, dispenser, a cash dispenser, as a way of saying that Britain is open to financial innovation and cryptocurrency. On purpose? Yes, on purpose. Unfortunately, I had to give it back oh, right. because, you know, as a government minister, I couldn't keep it. It would be worth tens of thousands of dollars now if I kept it. Bitcoin, for those who don't know, is a is a cryptocurrency. It's a decentralized cryptocurrency. One of the great. What does a cryptocurrency mean? Well, it's not. It's, it's not a real currency because yeah. it's not set by a central bank or the government. It's just kind of made up. You own this sort of unique digital asset. It can't be copied by anyone else. You can transfer ownership with very long and complicated codes. And its price has gone up and down. And we've been through what people call a crypto winter recently, i.e. there's been a big crash in all these sort of crypto ideas. But things are on the up again, for Bitcoin at least, it's up 
this year or so. And I think, you know, there are limitations to Bitcoin if you're getting really technical, not least because there's a limited amount of Bitcoin in the world. and, And it requires a huge amount of electricity to generate it because you have to have loads of computers creating your Bitcoins. But I think the idea that there's going to be a lot of innovation in finance and decentralized currencies have a big role to play, I think, is uh, a correct one. The um, chair of the US Securities and Exchange Commission, the guys in America who regulate these things, Gary Gensler, said recently that the sector, the Bitcoin sector, or the crypto sector was rife with fraud, scams, bankruptcies, and money laundering. I mean, it is kind of a a murky world. I would say to people, be very, very careful about investing in these cryptocurrencies, because what is it? It's just, you know, kind of like smoke and mirrors, really, really risky. Well, probably a good investment advice. But I would just point out that, you know, a $20 bill or a £20 note can be used for crime and fraud and money laundering. I mean, you know, what what the currency is used for is separate from whether it's going to have value. And I think it would be a mistake. I agree that, you know, there'll always be a route back to real world economies for these digital currencies. But there's a lot of innovation coming in this space. Sure. And central banks themselves are talking about how they have and manage digital currencies. But what you want is to know that it's sound and regulated and you know what the source is of the um, of the asset you're buying. And I would say, look, it just worries me. People taking a punt with money that they can't afford to lose on on what? And it's just sentiment and incredibly risky. Anyway, there we are. Final question. It's actually an email in from Paddy, who says, love the pod. First time I've emailed. I've got a story I was hoping George could provide some additional detail on. In summer 2018, I went to Russia for the World Cup with a few mates. After a big night in St. Petersburg, next morning we went to the Rasputin Museum. And we saw a bloke. We said he looks like George Osborne. And then coming up behind him was Hugh Grant. And I said, actually, that guy looks like Hugh Grant. And Paddy says, I still find it very confusing to this day. So he wants to know, were you and Hugh Grant in the Rasputin Museum in the summer of 2018 in Russia? Well, the short answer, Paddy, is yes, I was. Uh, <laughs> sounds a bit surprising. And we started this uh, podcast talking about the COVID inquiry and Dominic Cummings, the modern day Rasputin, but I went to see the house of the original Rasputin. It was it was during the World Cup. It was uh, back in the evening standard days. It was an evening standard trip. We did end up in the wrong city, has to be said, at the end of it all, because on this trip, we went to Novgorod to watch England play. And it turns out there are two Novgorods. <laughs> we, we ended up in the much more beautiful original capital of Russia, Novgorod. Did you notice there were no football plans at the (laughs) the airport? But we did notice when we got there that maybe this was not the right place. So we did watch the game in an Italian restaurant. Was it just you and Hugh Grant? There were a couple other people on the trip. But it was was great fun, it has to be said. Surreal moments in life when you are in politics and you end up spending time with um, unexpected people. I was just trying to think how I could match you on this. And actually, I'm going to go back to the summer of 1995, one of my roles as a young advisor, the team wanted Gordon Brown to have a holiday. And so I used to go and play tennis with him for two or three days somewhere in, in Europe. And we were in the um, in the south of France. And um, we'd gone to this quite fancy hotel. There was three of us, me, Gordon, and somebody else. And we got there and realised that um, the hotel only took cash, no credit cards. And I, I looked at how much cash we had. And we could afford one 
egg omelette and a cup of coffee each. And that was it. That was all of our cash. But we were in this very fancy hotel on this, you know, the south of France. And then suddenly there was a wave from over in the other side of the, of the room. And it was Stephen Fry and Emma Thompson who were down in the south of France. I think it was at the time when Stephen Fry had like um, absconded from a play he was in in the West End. And so they were in hiding. They'd all dyed their hair blonde and they came over to meet, you know. They dyed their hair blonde? Yeah, in a sort of Garden of Eden, Hemingway kind of way. Mm-hmm. And they were in disguise, and but they were very keen to see the Shadow Chancellor. And they come over and Gordon says, you know, come sit with us. He said, sit down. He said, what do you want? He said, lunch, a drink. And I'm sitting there thinking... We've got no money at all to pay for any of this. We could only afford one omelette between the three of us. And so Gordon's offering them, you know, lunch. And I'm sitting there thinking this is about to be the catastrophe because the Shadow Chancellor is going to be exposed to have no money to pay for it. And so I then just basically refused to ever call over the waiter. And we sat there and sat there. And in the end, they got the hint, got up, walked out, and that was it. Gordon Brown making spending commitments he couldn't afford. That Who knew? He had no magic money tree (laughs) that day. But it was because there was no plastic. Oh, no yeah. Bitcoin. Anyway. No Bitcoin. So thank you very much for listening this week. Been great. Don't forget you can send in your questions to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. See you next Thursday. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.